Well, howdy, y'all. Howdy. Good morning. Welcome to church. It's always good to be in the presence of the Lord with brothers and sisters of the faith. Come on, somebody say amen to that. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. I, I can't help but be reminded of uh, whenever everything kind of shut down for COVID and, and we weren't here together for services, that, that was a hard time. That was a hard time, I think, for all of us. Uh, it's, it's good to be in the house of God. It's good to be with fellow believers. So I'm thankful for that. Uh, amen. Amen. Uh, let's, get, let's pray as we just get started real quick. Father, we thank you for this moment, for this opportunity that we have to be in your house and to hear your word. And God, I pray that your word today would find a home not just in our ears and not only in our minds, God, but your word would find a home deep down inside of our hearts, God, that we would be propelled and, and convinced to change our lives and to change our actions and to change our world around us. In Jesus' name, someone say amen. 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 I want to honor Brother Billy and Sister Peggy for giving me the opportunity to share what God has put on my heart. And if you were here last week, uh, then we talked all about the law, the law, the law of Moses, the Mosaic law, the old law, the old covenant, the Old Testament. We, we call it all of these things, but uh, if you hear me say any of those phrases today, that's what I'm referring to is the first five books of the Bible, which is also called the Pentateuch. It's also called the Torah, lots of names for a lot of these things. Uh, but we talked about the law, the old law, and what it means to us as believers today, because I think there's this, uh, this confusion that we have whenever it comes to the law as to how it applies to our lives today. And so uh, just as a quick recap from last week, um, we talked about God's moral standard. The law of Moses is God's moral standard for our lives. It is also a covenant that God made with his people, the Israelites. Uh, it, can, it, made, it was made up of 613 rules or laws, and uh, it's found in the first five books of the Bible. And we talked about how we typically view the law. We think of it as being old, and, and we think of old things as being dilapidated or broken or needing to be repaired, and uh, we talked about how that's not the case with the old law. It is old, but it's not broken. There's still purpose, there's still meaning, and there's still a lot that we as New Testament Christians today, as believers of the work that Jesus Christ has done on, for us on the cross, there's a lot that we can gain by looking back at the old law. And so, we also talked about how Jesus came and fulfilled the law. He didn't come to throw it away, but he came to complete it, to fulfill it. And uh, so, what does that mean for us today as Christians under this new covenant? And I want to talk about the purpose of the law, the purpose of the law. We've talked about what the law is. Now, I want to finish up kind of this two-part sermon and talk about what is the purpose of the law for our lives as believers in Jesus Christ. So if you've brought your copy of the scriptures this morning, you can turn with us to Hebrews chapter 10. We're actually going to be spending a lot of time in uh, Romans, Hebrews, 
James. We're, we're going to be kind of all over the place this morning, but if you just want to find one place to turn to, you can turn there to uh, Hebrews chapter 10. Amen. So if we could sum up, or if I could sum up the old law and, and what that means to us and what its purpose is today, I want to try to do that in, uh, in three ways. And so if you're taking notes, you can write this down. Point number one, the purpose of the law is to prove our sin, to prove our sin. So whenever you look back at Genesis, Exodus, you get into all of those Levitical laws and, and you, you go on into Numbers and Deuteronomy and you see ceremonial laws and, and you see civil laws and all these types of laws that God gave Israel, what is its purpose for us today? Number one, it is to prove our sin. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever I make a mistake, whenever I do something that I shouldn't have done, I don't feel comfortable when someone points at me and says, ah, gotcha. Ah, I saw you do that. I saw you do that. Now, I don't know if any of you in here love that. Maybe you're the one weirdo in the group. You're like, oh, I love when people, you know, point fingers at me. But for most of us in this room, we could comfortably say that that, that doesn't make me feel good. Like, I don't like it when someone points out my sins. And so we could look at the old law, and I think a lot of us have this mentality that, oh, I don't, I'm not comfortable with these old laws because why? It's pointing out what's wrong inside of us, and that's not comfortable. In fact, in uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 20, they'll put it up on the screen for us, Paul tells the church in Rome, he says, for no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. He clarifies it. He says, the law simply shows us how sinful we are. That's one of its purposes, is to show us how sinful we are. Does anybody feel great about that? Like, you're like, oh man, yes, this is awesome. I love it. I love being shown how sinful I am. No, of course not. We don't. But what the old law tells us is this. You stepped out of line, and there's nothing you can do about it. In fact, the title of today's message is this. There's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing you can do. Look at your neighbor and say, there's nothing you can do about it. Nothing you can do about it. The old law, it proves to us how sinful we are. Romans chapter 7, verse 7. It says, well then... Am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. Paul says, I would never have known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said, you must not covet. I mean, when everything, we think about covetousness, you know, oh, they, they've got something. I like that. I wish I had that. And, and obviously that mentality can turn into some very dangerous things. But even just the idea of wanting something that someone else has, you wouldn't know that that was a sin unless we had the old law. Paul says we need the old law. We need the Mosaic law. As believers today in 2022, we need the old law because without it, we wouldn't know the boundaries of our sin. So I, I brought a little a dog cage this morning, and I want you to, to visualize it 
like this. The old law is God's moral standard for our lives. And without the old law, we would not be able to see where the boundary is in morality. We know that the Word of God is true. The Word of God is objectively true, not just subjectively true. There's a, lot of, there's a whole movement now saying that, you know, well, whatever you want to believe, that's your truth. Can I tell you, that's a bunch of baloney. Can we just say that's a bunch of baloney? Because there is one truth, and that's the Word of God. It shows us the boundaries, and the old law says, do not step over this line right here, or you have left the boundaries of God's morality, and you have entered into sin. He says, this is, this is the line, this is the line that is drawn for covetousness. If you step over, you have sinned. And that's what the law does. It proves to us our sin. I want to tell you why that's a good thing here in just a moment. You might already kind of have an idea, I'm sure. But I want to tell you a story first. Right out of high school, I went to Bible college at a place called Christ for the Nations. And it's in Dallas. And uh, it's a wonderful school, a spirit-filled school. Uh, and I had a semester there. My second semester, I had a class called Old Testament Survey. And in Old Testament Survey, we learned a lot about you guessed it, the Old Testament, we studied about the law of Moses, we studied about the prophets, we studied about different types of literature, uh, all these wonderful things that are in the Old Testament we studied. And I remember whenever we first came into the class the first day, our professor, he was known as the most strict professor on campus. He had, he, he, was, a, he was a great professor, in fact, he was one of my favorites and one of the favorites on campus because he was so engaging with his teaching. He, he was pretty entertaining. Uh, he's, he's, he's fairly funny. Uh, but the thing about him was, was he had very high expectations that we would retain and learn as he taught us. And so he was known as being the most strict professor on campus. And we get there the first day of this class and he says, uh, I know you've all looked at the syllabus. I hope that you've purchased the textbook that we will be going through this semester. And uh, this, is a, a, this is the book right here. Uh, it's 600 pages. It's 40 chapters long. And uh, he said, this is a requirement that, that you have this book. And now most professors, they'll tell you that, you know, it's required to buy a textbook. I think a lot of it's because a lot of these professors have a hand in writing the textbook and they get a little bit of... Uh, a little bit of, uh, you know, kickback from uh, the sale of it. But he said, this is not my textbook. I don't have anything to do with this. I'm not making anything off this. But it is required for you to have this book. He said, even more than that, he said, this semester, before you take your final exam, you will be required to read this textbook entirely from cover to cover. Now, you can imagine a bunch of kids fresh out of high school going, you know, they're, they're not with mom and dad anymore. They're experiencing, you know, freedom and, and uh, life on their own, trying to figure things out. You can imagine probably how well that went, him saying, you've got to read this, right? Not a whole lot of people. I mean, this isn't a, uh, it's not an entertaining novel. It's, it's got a lot of information in it. It's not exactly a fun read. But let me tell you, I always tried to be a very good student. 
And my goal was, I'm, but whenever I graduate Christ for the Nations, I'm going to have a 4.0 GPA. So I'm going to do it. I'm going to just apply myself. I'm going to do my best. And so I would get in this incredibly boring at times book, like reading through the Leviticus area. I'm just like, man, this is, you know, I'm not having trouble going to sleep as a college student. But if I was, like, this would be a great remedy for that. Just open it up and just start reading. <laughs> we go all through the semester, and, and, and I've done the best I can. And, and there have been times, you know, each class time we would go over one or two chapters, and he would tell us uh, every week, he would say, okay, uh, this week you should be reading uh, chapters 12 through 19. And he would kind of keep us up to date on where we should be with our reading. And so we get to the end of the semester, and we go in to take our final exam. And the whole class, this is, a, this is a large class, there's probably 500 students in this class, and uh, we, we go into this class and everyone is nervous because he's the most strict professor. And we're, we're thinking, man, this, this is going to be hard, Jesus, you're going to have to help me. Uh, everyone's sweating bullets. We walk into the classroom and everybody gets seated. He said, okay, I'm gonna, uh, we're going to hand out your test folders. Um, but don't open them until I, you know, let everyone know. And then once I let you know, you can open your test and begin it. And so they hand out the folders, and we're just sitting there, and not a word is being spoken. It's just quiet, and, but you can feel the, the tension and the nervousness in the room. And everybody gets their folder, and he says, okay, go ahead and open up your test. So we open it. And all of a sudden, the entire classroom just starts, yes, all right, this is great. Because as we open the folders, our entire test is on half of a sheet of paper. It's five questions long. And all of a sudden, we're like, this is the greatest professor, I'm telling you, the greatest professor that has ever walked God's beautiful green earth. And he tells us this. He says, okay, as you get started, I want to let you know that this is an open book test. And whenever he said that, I mean, people are like, you know, throwing things in the air and, you know, everyone's just, it's just jubilant. Everyone's excited. And there's, I mean, applause is just spreading around the room. Everyone's happy. He says, here's the only thing that I ask of you. I want you to answer all five questions honestly. And I'm like, man, I got this. This is good. This is good. I go to question one. I already know it from memorization. It's, it's easy. Question number two, oh, man, I've got this one too. Question number three, I'm like, ah, oh, I can't remember, but I can, I, it's an open book test, so I can go in here to Leviticus and find that part that I fell asleep on and, and uh, go to question number four. Oh, this is easy. I got it. This test is in the bag. It's, it's going to be a great year. It's, it's, been, it's been awesome. And I get to question number five, and the question says, did you read all 40 chapters of your textbook entirely? Yes or no? And beside each question on the test, in parentheses, it said 20 points. This way you could get 100 points on this test. Each question is worth 20 points. And the last question he said, you, you got to answer it honestly. Did you read? And there is a right and a wrong answer. And I remember thinking, my goodness. And, and during this time of my life, God was really impressing on my heart the value of, 
obviously, of integrity and, and good character. And so I looked at this question, and I did what every good Christian would do. I circled yes. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I, I, I honestly, I circled no. I really did. I circled no. I said, no, I didn't read it in its entirety. Let me tell you, my little college heart just broke in two because I knew that the best that I could make on this test was an 80. And I was devastated because I was like, if this puts me below an A in this class, now that would be an 80 on the test, but that wouldn't account for my whole grade that semester. So if this 80 brought me below an A in this class, I'm going to lose it. I'm going to be devastated. But God had been working on my heart, so I answered it honestly. A couple of days later, I I log into my student portal to look up my grades. I am nervous, y'all. Open it up and look at all my classes. A, A, A. Old Testament survey, B. Oh, like a dagger in the heart. So I thought, well, I know what I can do. I can go talk to the professor. Because I made a 95, and the way Christ for the Nation grades, their, their grade scale is a 96 and above is an A. And I made a 95 in the class, so I got a B. And so I go to my professor, go into his office, and I made an appointment with him, go into his office, and I say, Dr. Seif, I, I really enjoyed your class. It was a wonderful class. I said, uh, but, but that finals test. You know, I, I answered the fifth question honestly, that I didn't read the entire book. And, and I feel like I should clarify myself. Like, I read all 40 chapters, but there were a couple of times throughout the semester where I wasn't able to finish the chapter before class started. And uh, so, I, although I read the majority of every chapter, there may have been a couple that I didn't finish. And so, I answered honestly on that question that I did read all 40 chapters, but not all of them completely. So, I, I circled no. He said, oh, I see. He said, uh, Mr. Wisdom, he said, uh, you, you told me that you did answer that question honestly, right? And I said, yes, sir. He said, uh, let me tell you, you're a good student. He said, I imagine most of these tests that were returned back to me, people probably answered without honesty. He said, you're a good student. He said, have you ever read the book of James? I said, well, yes, sir. He said, you know, in James, there's a a verse that says that if you break one of God's laws, you are guilty of breaking the entire law. You are as guilty as someone who has broken all of the laws. He said, do you believe that? I said, well, yeah, I believe that. He said, well, good, because that's what we've been studying. (laughs) He said, well, how do you think you did this semester? I said, I think I did really good. Like, I applied myself. I worked hard. He said, okay, well, he said, Mr. Wisdom, if God's word is true, and if you break one of God's old laws, you're guilty of breaking all of them, he said, you should be really happy that you got a B and not an F in my class. What? He said, but I want you to know this. You're a good student. He said, Mr. Wisdom, here's something I want you to understand from this. I said, I take it you're not going to give me an A. He said, no, I'm not going to give you an A. 
He said, this is what I want you to understand from this. He says, whenever you take a test, whether it's at school or in life, the results of that test don't tell me or anyone else how you're doing. The results from that test are there to tell you how you're doing. It's to tell you what parts you're doing good in and what parts you need to work on. He said, now, I don't know what your life is like outside of class. He said, uh, but inside of class, this test is telling you that there are some things that you can work on. And I said, so you're not going to give me an A? He said, no. He said, you got to be. He said, what I did in this class as the professor had no bearing on your grade. Your grade is a reflection of your habits and of your time studying and of your life. You know, I walked out of there sad and frustrated and so mad. I was so upset. But let me tell you, that, that's the only B I've ever gotten in my life, although I probably should have got Bs in, in some classes. But that's the only B I ever got in my life. But that 4.0 GPA, having that 4.0 GPA, which I didn't get, obviously, but having that 4.0 GPA would mean less to me today than having that B. I'm thankful for that B. I'm thankful for that lesson. I'm thankful for a pro professor that would say, no, this isn't a reflection of me. This isn't a reflection of anyone else. This is a reflection of you. And church, that's the word, that's the old law to us. It proves to us where we need help, where, we, where we're missing the mark. Look at the person you're sitting beside and say, you stepped out of line. And there's nothing you can do about it. Whenever it comes to the old law, we read all these 613 laws. You've broken some. And as James says, if you've broken one, you're guilty of breaking the whole thing. We are sinners, church. That's the truth. We are sinners. And this is what the old covenant tells us. It tells us that not only have we stepped out of line and there's nothing we can do about it, but it also tells us that we needed a better covenant, that we needed a better covenant. And that's the purpose of the old, the old covenant is to show us where the line was for God's idea for our morality. But here's the thing. Jesus came and he fulfilled that old covenant and he brought us a new covenant. That brings us to point number two right here if you're taking notes. The purpose of the law was to point us to Jesus. If you look through the Old Testament, all throughout it, it is all telling one story, and that story is the story of Jesus Christ. It tells us that um, it's, it's a captivating story. I love it because there's love stories, there's poetry, there's stories of war. I mean, there's stories of, of famine and, and earthquakes and natural disasters. And we see all of these stories in the Old Testament, and they all point to one thing, Jesus. It's like a big neon sign in, in the sky saying, hey, Jesus is that way. You need him. You're pretty sinful. You've broken a lot of laws, so you need a better covenant. You need Jesus. You need Jesus. You need a Savior, and there's nothing you could do about it. There's nothing you could do about it. Hebrews chapter 9, if you're in, in Hebrews chapter 10, you can just flip back one page. Look at Hebrews chapter 9. Verse 9, I don't think I gave this to you, Taya, I'm sorry. So they won't have it up on the screen, but you can look at it uh, there in your Bibles. 
Hebrews chapter 9, verse 9 says, this is an illustration pointing to the present time, and, and the writer of Hebrews just got done talking about the, uh, the old law and the, the ceremonial parts of the law. He says, all of this was just an illustration that was pointing to the present time. For the gifts and sacrifices that the priests offer are not able to cleanse the consciences of the people who bring them. For that old system deals only with food and drinks and various cleansing ceremonies, physical regulations that were in effect only until a better system could be established. This is the story of the Old Testament is that you needed a Savior. There is sin in your life and you needed a Savior. And the whole Old Testament just points and pushes you towards Jesus. This is why we can't get rid of the old law. We can't get rid of the Old Testament as a believer. Why? Because the whole thing was pointing humanity towards Jesus. Listen, I think it would do us some good to get into something, to read some of these old laws and realize, oh, hang on, I missed that. I haven't been doing that at all. Okay, this one over here, I'm I'm good with this law. I've been doing that. I've been practicing that. But this one over here, I I could... use more practice on it because it shows us our sin, but it also shows us that we needed a Savior. We needed a Savior. Romans chapter 10, verse 4, it says, for Christ has already accomplished the purpose. Someone say the purpose. He has accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. The law could not save us, church, but it could point us to Jesus. What happens is whenever we look into the old law, it's like getting in this cage right here, and you can see the standard that God has for your life. But here's the thing. This cage is, is not very strong. It's not very sturdy. It's, it's, it's one of those that you can just collapse, right? <laughs> But it shows me the boundaries. Now, if I wanted to, I could easily just step over this cage. And what happens whenever I step over this cage? I have left the boundaries of God's morality for me. And God looked at that and he says, hey, no one could keep all of those laws. I didn't give those laws to save you. I gave those laws to show you your sin." Let me put it to you, let me say it this way. Satan says, okay, this might surprise some of y'all, but Satan says, okay, you need to stay within these laws. Do not transgress these laws right here. That's what Satan will tell you. He'll tell you this, do not step out. Why? Because whenever you step out, you're proving to God and others that you're not holy, that you're not righteous. You need to stay within those lines. Does it surprise anyone that that would be Satan's tactic for our lives? It's like, you, you need to stay right there so you can be holy. Show everyone how holy you are. And God says, I didn't give this to you so that you would be saved. I gave this to you to show you that you're a sinner. Satan tells you to stay within it to prove that you're holy. I, sh- I gave you that law to show you that you were not holy to begin with. You were born into sin. You were born into unrighteousness. It's like whenever you're born, you've got one foot in and one foot out. You are already in sin. And there's 
And there's nothing you can do about it. So we could look at this old law and say, hey, that, you know, although the, the boundaries of God's law is a good moral standard, we needed something else. We needed a better covenant. And Jesus, whenever he came, he fulfilled the Old Testament. He fulfilled the old law. He fulfilled the prophets. Even before, by the time he was born, he was already fulfilling prophecies about his birth. And throughout his life, he was fulfilling these prophecies that we read in Isaiah and Jeremiah, and Jonah and Micah and Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, all these prophets are speaking of Jesus. And Jesus, by the time he's born and, and goes throughout his life and, and dies on the cross and is resurrected, he's fulfilling the old law, the old prophets. But he also fulfilled the commandments and the rules by teaching them and by obeying them. You see, we were born with one foot in and one foot out. But Jesus, though he was born to a woman, he had a heavenly father. And he was not born into sin because even his conception was miraculous. And he, throughout his life, he stayed within the boundaries of God's moral standards. And he taught people about the boundaries of God's moral standards. And whenever he died on the cross, he died still having not stepped out of God's moral standards. And doing so, he became the perfect Come on, the perfect sacrifice for our sins, for our transgressions. Oh, it's about to get good. Are y'all ready? It's about to get good. Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, he said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I didn't come to destroy it. I came to fulfill them. I stayed within the boundaries of God's moral standard, and I fulfilled that sacrifice. Oh, Mm, come on. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. We're finally there. Sorry, it took me a while, but we're finally there. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. It says, the old system under the law of Moses, it was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. Ooh, what he's saying is this here. The old law was pointing to you was pointing you to the good thing to come, and that is Jesus Christ. The good thing himself was shown even in the Old Testament. It says the sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never, someone say never, they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. Until Jesus came. Mm. Until Jesus came. Skip down to verse 8. First, Christ said, You did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings or burnt offerings or other offerings for sin, nor were you pleased with them, though they were required by the law of Moses. Think about what the writer of Hebrews is saying here, and he's, he's quoting Jesus. Jesus said, Father, even though you required these sacrifices in your law, it's not what you really wanted. Oh, come on, church. It's not ever what he really wanted. What he wanted 
was that perfect sacrifice. And when the time came, Jesus stepped in as that perfect sacrifice for our sin. It goes on, verse 9, it says, Then he said, Look, I have come to do your will. And he cancels the first covenant in order to put the second into effect. For God's will was for us to be made holy. Someone say holy. By the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. I don't know who this is for here today. But I think we need to know that there is nothing you can do about your sin. There is no work that you can perform. There is no action that you can take. There's nothing you can do about your sin. And it was always God's will for it to be that way. Why? Because he had a plan to redeem us from ourselves, to redeem us from our sin, to redeem us from the enemy. Verse 11 says, under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day. In the old covenant. The priest would stand before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. Come on. He said the priest under the the old law, the priest had to offer these animal sacrifices, but they never could take away your sin. They, they could cover your sin. We talked about the atonement a few months ago. The, the sacrifices of animals could cover your sin, but it tells us that Jesus' sacrifice takes away our sin. Come on, church. I don't know if you got that or not. Come on. Listen, you don't have to hide your sin the, the, the old law, it shows us, hey, this is your sin. It points it out to us, and we don't have to hide it. Why? Because it's not our works that will bring us salvation or make us righteous in God's eyes anyway. It is only the work of Jesus Christ that can take your sins away from you. Come on, in God's eyes. If you have accepted Jesus Christ in your heart, if you have put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior, listen, in God's eyes, it is though you have never sinned. He doesn't cover it up. He takes it away, church. He takes it away. And this is what the whole law for us believers today, this is what it's about, is us looking at that and saying, hey, I'm a dirty, rotten, filthy sinner but I'm not in God's eyes because I have been redeemed by a perfect sacrifice. I may have stepped over the line. I may have transgressed. Let, let, me, let me put it to you this way. <laughs> this right here is God's moral standard for your life. And if you step out of these 613 laws that God gave, you have stepped out of God's moral standard for your life. But guess what? You have not stepped outside of God's love for you. You've stepped outside of his standard for living, which is a good standard for living, and it still is today. But when you stepped out, you have not stepped out of God's love for you, church. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Galatians chapter 3, verse 23. 
It says, before the way of faith in Christ, before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak. <laughs> it's like we've been put in a dog cage until the way of faith was revealed. Let me put it another way, Paul says to the church in Galatia. The law was our guardian until Christ came. Depending on what translation you're reading, it may say tutor or schoolmaster. I'll explain that in just a moment. But the law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith, not works, through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. This is what he is saying to the church in Galatia. He's saying this, as long under the old law, as long as you were in God's moral standard, you were right in God's eyes. And if you stepped out, you were no longer right in God's eyes. But now, if even if you step out, even if you transgress, that's what that word means, is to step over or to go around. Even if you transgress God's moral standard for your life, you have not left the love of God. You've not left the love of God. It was our guardian until Jesus came. This is no longer his standard as whenever it comes to the covenant or whenever it comes to our righteousness or our salvation. This is no longer the standard. Does that mean we just disregard it and throw it away? Jesus said no. No, no, no. He came and he taught the law. He came and he lived within the moral standards of God. But through his sacrifice on the cross, it opened a brand new covenant for us. And this covenant says that even if you step outside, you have still not left my love. You have still not left my love. Come on. James chapter 2, verse 10, I, I mentioned it just a moment ago. This is the portion of Scripture that my professor was talking about. It says, for the person who keeps all of the laws except for one, is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. And I want to try to give you an illustration to, to help us to understand this this morning. What James is saying here is that you are in a classroom, and on your lap is a 613-question test. And if you get one of those questions wrong, you fail the test. How do you feel about yourself? <laughs> right? No one in here is passing. By the way, you have already started the test, and you have already failed the test. But his new covenant of faith and grace is like the professor saying, you know what? There was one student in here that took this test and he made a perfect score. And if you want it, I will allow you to take his score too. That is the new boundary. That is the new boundary. The old covenant shows us the boundaries of God's moral standard, but the new covenant shows us the boundaries of his love. 
Church, we need a Savior, and there was nothing we could do about it, but there is something that God did about it, and in doing it, he showed us his eternal love with no end. Here's point number three, the last point. The purpose of the law is to provide a way of blessing. Look at your neighbor and say, you were loved by God. And there's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing you can do about it. James chapter 1, verse 22. He says, don't just listen to God's word. Whenever it comes to us as believers in this new covenant, he's still talking about the old. He says, don't just listen to God's word, but you must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourself. For if you listen to the word and don't obey, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself and you walk away and you forget, ex- you forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law, James says the perfect law that sets you free. And if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will, he will, listen, I think someone needs to hear this today. It doesn't say then he will save you for doing it. It doesn't say that he, he will make you righteous for doing it. He said God will bless you for doing it. There is not a single work that you have to perform to gain the love of Christ. Not one single work. All you have to do is have faith. Just have faith. Have faith in in the Son of God. Have faith in the sacrifice that Jesus made for you on the cross. But here's the thing. If we will do these works, and we're not saved through the works, but if we do these works, then God will bless us for doing it. You will be blessed on this earth. You will be blessed in eternity. So what does it mean for us as New Testament believers when we look at the old covenant, the old law? Should we do it? Help me out. Yes. Why? Because it's God's perfect moral standard, and the moral standard hasn't changed when Jesus came. It's perfect and we should do it, but, th- but doing it will not save us. It will not gain us eternity, but if we do it, we will be blessed. I don't know about you, church, but I want to be blessed. I want to be blessed. So what do I do? With my finances, I look to the word of God and say, God, how should I handle my finances? And we hear about this idea of, of tithing, and a lot of people say, well, every time I go to church, all they talk about is money, 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 just one money. Y'all remember last week I told you there, there's one law that's repeated three times. Anyone remember that? Anybody remember what the law is? You must not cook. Y'all remember? You must not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. It's the only law that's repeated three times in the Torah, in the Pentateuch. The only one. Well, what does that mean to us? Like, as a New Testament believer, how do, okay, if that's God's perfect moral standard, like, what does that mean for me? Like, I live in modern-day America. No one's eating goat. Maybe some of y'all do. <laughs> I don't have goats, so it's not hard for me to not transgress this law because I don't have a goat and I'm not going to cook it. 
I'm not going to cook it. I'm definitely not going to cook it in his mother's milk. I'm like, got you, God. I've, that makes perfect sense to me. So, so how do we make sense of this old law today? Remember last week we talked about we don't necessarily have to do the physical requirements, but we pull out. Anybody remember? We pull out the principle from the laws. So I want you to look at this, Exodus chapter 23. This is the first time we see of this law. As you harvest your crops, bring the very best, someone say the very best, of the first harvest to the house of the Lord your God. You must not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. There you have it. Let's go. I think it's the 34. What's the, the next one? Exodus 34, maybe it's 36. Exodus 34, verse 26. It says, as you harvest your crops, this is the second time it says, as you harvest your crops, bring the very best of the first harvest to the house of the Lord your God. You must not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. Like, I got you, God, loud and clear. Don't be cooking the goats, you know. We hear it the third time in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 14. You must not eat anything that has died a natural death. You must give it, you may give it to a foreigner living in your town, or you may sell it to a stranger. That seems kind of gross. But do not eat it yourselves, for you are set apart as holy to the Lord your God. By the way, you must not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. But look at the very next verse. You must set aside a tithe of your crops, one-tenth of all the crops you harvest each year. I don't know if you noticed the, the, uh, the parallels there, but each time God tells you not to cook your goat in its mother's milk, he gives us another, another attachment right there, saying you must bring the first of your harvest every year to the Lord your God. You must tithe a tenth of this year's harvest to the Lord your God. Have any of y'all ever heard the, the old idiom, don't throw the baby out? Come on, y'all help me out here. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Have y'all ever heard that? Don't throw the baby out. Don't toss the baby out with the bathwater. Now, whenever we use this expression, apparently some of y'all do. Some of y'all are like, I ain't never heard that in my life. <laughs> but for those of y'all that may have used this expression before, this idiom before, we know that it doesn't mean... Don't throw your baby out. That's a given. Like, you know, duh. We're not going to throw our babies out after we give them a bath. You know, of course not. Why would we ever do that? It's an idiom. In other words, it's an expression. And what it means, I guess you could take it to mean many things, but what I take it to mean is don't be in such a hurry to get rid of what's bad that you throw away what's good in it. Like, we get in such a rush to just get rid of the bad things that, that we might accidentally throw away something that's good and valuable. But when we say that, we're not actually talking about babies. You know that, right? Throughout history in the ancient Israel, there's an idiom that says, don't boil a goat in its mother's milk. So this is a law that God gives, and I'm sure he meant it to be taken literally, but only as a symbol. What he's saying is this, because back in this time, you remember this is before Jesus, this is before the new covenant, this is before the Holy Spirit, and the Bible tells us that whenever Jesus brought the new covenant, the Holy Spirit wrote his laws where? On our hearts. 
and in our conscience. That's why he said the, the old animal sacrifices, they never could cleanse the conscience of the people. It could only cover their, their sins, right? But whenever Jesus came, he took away your sins. In other words, not just was, was the things that you did um, taken care of, but your conscience could also be cleaned. Your conscience could also be cleaned as a result of it. And this is what happens in the new covenant, but in the old covenant, the law was just written on paper, on stone, on a scroll. And so what would happen is whenever God said, hey, bring a tenth of your harvest each year and offer it to the Lord your God as a, as a thanksgiving offering, as a, as a form of worship, a, a way to say thank you, God, for this year's harvest, bring a tenth of your harvest to the house of God. And don't boil a young goat in its mother's milk. What he's saying is this, because at that time, whenever people's consciences couldn't even be clean, they only cared about fulfilling the requirements of the law. What they would do, they would hear God say, you must give a tenth of this year's uh, portion of grain. What they would do is they would take 5% of this year's harvest, and if they had leftovers from last year's harvest, they would take 5% of that and mix it all together and bring it to the house of God, hoping that no one would notice, hoping that the priests wouldn't, wouldn't figure out that there's old leftover harvest and a new good fresh harvest. And so whenever we hear these words, don't boil a baby goat in its mother's milk, what God is saying is using an idiom that the people use already, and he's saying this, listen, it's not morally acceptable in God's perfect moral standard to take something that is old and mix it with something that is new and offer it as a sacrifice to God. Because why? We should worship in spirit and in truth. That means our worship shouldn't just come from half of our heart. Our worship shouldn't just come as, as just our leftovers of the week. Whenever we come in here on Sunday, church, we shouldn't just come in here, man, I'm tired. It was a long week. I'm drained. We should come in here saying, God, you know what? I'm tired. It was a long week. I'm drained. But you deserve it all. But I should lift my hands to you. I should lift my voice to you. I will worship you not just with a half-hearted worship, but I'm going to take the young goat and I'm going to bring it to you whole. I'm not going to cook it first. I'm not going to mix it with anything else. I'm just going to bring it to you as a pure sacrifice of worship. So what does it mean for us as a New Testament believer to look at the Old Testament? It means we don't have to do the physical things. Church, you do not have to worry about boiling the goat in its mother's milk. But we do pull the principle out of it. Say, God, I will not offer you something except for a perfect praise, except for a wholehearted offering. Come on, church. That was good. That was good. But I want to say this as the worship team comes. James told us, he said, you will be blessed for doing the law not saved, not made righteous, you will be blessed. Now, 
Church, even if we step outside of God's, I need you to understand this. Even if we step outside of God's moral standard, we have not left his love. And if you came in here tonight or this morning just riddled with guilt and shame for what you've done, I want you to know this. You have not left the love of God. He loves you. He accepts you. He wants you. He desires you. You've not left his love. Let me give you one more illustration as they're getting ready to lead us into worship. As a father, I've, I've got two sons. One's about to turn seven, one that just turned three. And uh, every now and then I'll, I'll tell my boys because they just, I mean, I tell them, I, I go in the room a lot and I'm like, you know what? I got to call the governor and let him know that he needs to declare a state of emergency for your bedroom. This is awful. This is awful. We need assistance in getting this back to livable conditions, right? And so I'll tell them that. They have no idea what I'm talking about, but I don't know. I'll tell them, boys, go in your room. Clean up your room. Every now and then, my oldest son, Jack, he'll say, yes, sir, Daddy. And he'll run in there. He'll close the door behind him. And he'll be in there for an hour, and it's the most beautiful, quiet hour of the day. And he'll come back out, say, Daddy, come look at my room. And I'll go into his room. He says, look, Daddy, I rearranged the books on the shelf so they look real nice. Look, Daddy, I made my bed and I put all my stuffed animals up there real nice and neat. Look, Daddy, and he'll open the drawer. I took my clothes out and refolded them to make them look real good and, and put them back. And, and look, Daddy, I vacuumed the floor. And, and look, Daddy, I didn't just throw things in the closet, but everything looks nice. Can I tell you how happy that makes my heart? And it's not just that he was obedient but it's that he had a good attitude. That he did it not just because he was told, but because he wanted to. He wanted to offer something, something that I would find valuable. And as his father, whenever he does things like that, it makes me want to bless him for it. I'm like, Jack, I know it's almost dinner time, but let's see if we can sneak a bowl of ice cream outside. Tell him, hey, Jack, I, do you have any, we, we, he has a Nintendo Switch, and he can only play for a certain amount of time each day. So, Jack, do you have any time left over on your Switch so we can play Mario Kart together? Say, Jack, do you want to go outside and, and throw the baseball? Do you want to go outside and hit some balls off the tee? Because I just want to be with him. I want to bless him. I just want to pour out blessing on him. That's what I want to do. Now, sometimes... I'll say, boys, go clean your room. <sighs> Dad, it's awful. It's going to take us forever. They go inside. An hour later, I walk in the room, and it looks worse than it did before. What do I tell them? Do I say, son, you know what? I think it would be better if you left the house. You know what, son? I think it would be better if you never called me father again. What kind of dad would I be? He's an awful father. I want you to understand this today, church. Whenever it comes to the old law, 
God's love for you is not tied to your obedience to the law. Come on. You may have stepped over the boundaries of his perfect standard for your life and what's good for your life. You may have stepped over that, but you have not left his love. You have not left his love. He just says, hey, if you'll stay there, if you'll do this, I, I want to bless you for doing it. But I need you to know that even if you don't, I still love you. I still call you my child. <laughs> Listen, we're not under this law of rules anymore. We're under a law of faith, of faith. If you would stand to your feet. What does that mean? It means you don't have to work for your salvation. It's a free gift of grace through faith in Christ Jesus. The works that we do now are not a, not a requirement of God, but the works that we do now are a response of worship. We say, God, we thank, I thank you for saving me. I thank you for making me right in your sight. And as a response, I want to do. I want to worship. I want to lift my hands. I want to walk out this life. I want to teach my children. I want to respect and love my spouse. I want to make sure that I'm not cheating anybody. I want to make sure that I'm living a holy, a righteous, a moral life but not out of obligation anymore. It's just a response because you've been that good to me. Yes. Listen, it's a better covenant with a better promise and a better high priest as the book of Hebrews tells us. So our response, it would be right for our response to be worship. And so this morning, as our worship team leads us, I want to encourage you to give God not a half-hearted worship. Don't mix what's left over with, with what you think he deserves. Give him what he deserves fully and completely. We believe here at Calvary Tabernacle that worship is an outward expression of the love you have in your heart for Jesus. So we believe in clapping. We believe in lifting our hands. We believe in, in dancing. We believe in shouting. We believe in lifting up a praise that God would be pleased with. And the praise that he's pleased with isn't the amount of your worship, but the heart that your worship comes from. So this morning, I want to encourage you, if there's something in your life while we worship, if there's something that that in your life that just says, I, I haven't quite done it, I haven't quite made it, I, I feel like I've failed, I want you to know you're welcome to come down here and worship, not because of what you've done, but because of who God is and what he did for you on the cross. And if you need a prayer for anything this morning, anything at all, we want to let you know you are free to come down to the front. We have a team that would love to pray with you and agree with you in prayer for whatever need you have. But this morning, my encouragement to you would be lift up a worship from your heart, not part of it, but lift the whole thing up this morning. Jesus, we love you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for your old law that it can guide us in righteous living. But God, we thank you that we're not made righteous by it, but that we're made righteous through your sacrifice on the cross for our sins. And as a result today, we want to lift to you a worship, a loud worship, a crazy worship, a, a demonstrative worship, because you have been that good to us. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Let's worship, church.